0: Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work in week 42 and getting ready for week 43. Your audio guide to the workplace, Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk here. Hello, I don't think it's week 42, 43. It's not. This is week one, 2009. Thanks for joining me, Paul McLaughlin. We're going to be listening to uh, Martin Lindstrom, his book on biology, truth and lies about why we buy. I think it's as relevant now as it was when we talked with Martin in Back in October, but thought I'd just take you through some of the things that we have been discussing over the course of the last nine months since I joined Matrix Media and WebTalkRadio.net as Paul McLaughlin, the Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. I want to thank Brad Saul for bringing me on, seeing the light, and encouraging me, encouraging me through these last few months as we brought you uh, authors, leaders, management expertise, employment. Start off a little bit of Pam Schilling, talking about somebody who left corporate America, preparing us for what the future had in store if we were not going to work corporate America, taking care of some of the fear factor associated with taking the big leap off. Art Kleiner, who was uh, with us a couple of times, one with his book, The Age of Heretics, talking about the gurus, management gurus, who started off the post-World War II management Um, science, if you will. Steve Little talked about the milkshake moment uh, and how that brief encounter of trying to order a milkshake in a hotel led to some thoughts about consumers and customers and what we ask for and what we get. Richard Florida talked about who's your city, the importance not only of relationships and what we do, but where we do them, more and more of significance. um, And I would think it's going to be as true in 2009 as it was in 7 and 8 when he started collecting the data, even more so. Brian Ross, chief investigative reporter of ABC News, joined us a couple of times. Most recently, the person who revealed the insensitivity of the corporate auto titans of Ford, GM, and Chrysler by descending on Washington by private jet, each separate ones, an insensitivity that is stunning in, uh, in uh, retrospect. Ori Broffman, his book, Sway, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior, and if that didn't predict or anticipate without pointing a finger earlier about Bernard Madoff and the, the Madoff-Ponzi scheme, I don't know what does. Good book, great book. The concept of, just think about it, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior. A lot of us have been going through that and regretting it over the last uh, three or four months. Phil Myers talked about uh, consumers, customers, being tuned in as a provider of service or a product. Be tuned in to your customer. Always good to understand and follow. Andy McKee, who's a leadership guru, talked about it. offered a workbook of leadership hints about how we can affect our style and get better at it. Charles Fishman book in 06 about the Walmart effect, once again, without predicting, but setting the stage for a great year for Walmart in 2008. Probably one of the few retailers to show that kind of uh, how the economy can benefit people like Walmart. They've been doing it right for a long time and they didn't miss a beat this year. Uh, Jim Stern and Jamie Singleton we had on to discuss some of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and private equity alternative investment backgrounds. Interesting footnote, Jim Stern is the chairman of the board of Tufts University, which got caught by making an investment with an individual who, in turn, invested that money, $20 million, with Bernard Madoff. That was a write-off. So it doesn't make any difference how sophisticated you were. In fact, the more sophisticated perhaps the more trusting and there's an element of that of of family and and the crowd and and how much you uh assimilate uh and identify with people of your own type and how that trust can sometimes lead to a disaster if you are not performing due diligence and 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 don't spread the portfolio a lot of people can reflect on that i don't think that decision that uh will be those decisions will be made again the same way although History does repeat itself. Paul Carroll talked to, uh, t- talked to us about billion-dollar lessons. I don't think we learned a lot from them. They were interesting, but not the, f- the kind that would um, uh, force people to reassess their behavior. And uh, that, that's really too bad. And maybe we'll learn more from the realities, the experience of 2008 than by a book. But Paul certainly outlined uh, what we should look out for, uh, caveat emptor. Ariane Boivacin talked about the first 30 days, and that was a a book about change, uh, how we deal with it, how change is a part of life. Nobody expected the pendulum to sway. Just think. Think about year-end 2007, and think about year-end 2008, and how many things of substance have changed in our lives, in my life, in your life, the resolutions, the joy, the anguish, the seeing the bottom of the barrel in a way for all of us that we have and never really had to look at before until the water drains out of the bucket. And in that case, it was money. And I'm going to have a piece uh, by Ben Stern that was in the New York Times, uh, Ben Stein. Sorry, Mr. Stein, who was a lawyer, writer, actor, and economist. He wrote an interesting piece. We're going to close this with his observations. Um. John Ruggie talked about in the Carnegie Council, he is special representative of the U.N., talking about the human rights dilemma in, in, global, in the globalization, global economy, who protects the rights of, of humans, individuals who are providing the services or providing the products. Interesting spot. Spent a couple of weeks on networking with uh, Bob Weiss and with Liz Lynch, Uh, her book about networking. Joe Trippi showing us how Barack Obama got in, uh, raised the money that he did, social networking, how it all began. Interesting story. Uh, Joe Trippi, as you know, was the power behind Howard Dean's ascendancy. And then when he fell, the acolytes of Joe Trippi were instrumental in bringing Barack Obama into his now presidency, some twenty odd days away. Fundraising, continuing the networking theme. Something I didn't didn't have the courage to bring up with uh, Reynold Levy when I talked to him. But the obvious was a little bit like Willie Sutton. He went where the money was, and it'll be interesting to raising money as he did and and very successfully for Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. He's the president there, uh, and. What's going to happen there is whether people who now have names who, who made commitments, I know that they have ceased making other commitments. It would be interesting to see, unfortunate, that undoubtedly some of those commitments are simply not going to be able to be met because the people don't have the money anymore. They took it out of investments, not their current income, and that investments is exactly what has gone poof in the night. We close with uh, Jamie Singleton, Andy Coward, and Kevin Luzak talking about uh state of financial services, uh, the auto industry, uh, all those, uh, uh, health care as we go into 2009. I thought it was uh, interesting and compelling stuff. So that's a brief run, rundown of the authors and issues that we raised. We also had the opportunity to talk about some Uh, We we talked to to our friend Colleen Stone about WAMU and how uh, everybody out in Seattle uh, didn't understand exactly how WAMU was uh, doing as well. It was a, quote, darling of Wall Street. How many darlings of Wall Street have there been in 2009 that are now color me black? It ain't good. It's too bad. We talked about piracy in the high seas before anybody really noticed it. Uh, a footnote to that is that the Chinese Navy, for the first time, has left the shores of China to protect their uh, their um, their interests in oil in the Sudan. Um, some political issues associated with that, but interestingly, piracy is a bigger issue now than ever. Vendee Globe race that's going on around the world. People have uh, 50 days in of trying to circumnavigate solo. 13 competitors out of 30 some odd have been forth to withdraw at man against nature. Nature wins invariably. Smoking, which will come up in uh, biology in Martin Lindstrom's book. The Supreme Court has made a Uh, decision which is unfathomable to the average reader about uh, the ability of somebody to pursue a suit against the tobacco companies once again on their marketing of light cigarettes keep an eye on that one because health care smoking costs is one of those things that simply cannot continue in a healthy country and hopefully uh, people will use the economy as an excuse to get that message Which brings me to Ben Stein and his column for the New York Times yesterday, Sunday, 28 December. I will tell you about the main myth that's hurting investors now. It is well expressed by my hero, Bob Dylan, who warns against being nothing more than something they invest in in the immortal song, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. We are more than our investments. We are more than the year to year or day by day changes in our net worth. We are what we do for charity. We are how we treat our family and friends. We are how we treat our dogs and cats. We are what we do for our community and our nation. You may have a lot less money as this year ends than you did two years ago, but you are just as good or bad a person as you were then. It is a myth that money determines who you are, and if you have gotten over that myth by now, then 2008 will have been a very good year. Well put, I think. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk. Web Talk Radio, beginning 2009, week one, going back to Martin Lindstrom, biology. The Work Walk, here with the pleasant surroundings, the bar at Mandarin Oriental Hotel on Manhattan's west side, Columbus Circle. Today's uh, discussion is around brands, and more importantly, buying patterns, and the book and the expertise resident in one Martin Lindstrom, the book is Biology, B-U-Y dot O-L-O-G-Y Truth and Lies About Why We Buy.
1: That's right, yes.
0: Uh, Thank you very much for joining me here. Pleasure. First to uh, Martin Lindstrom is explain what the book does but in the context of the technology and your research, when when was the earliest that this book could have come out effectively?
1: Well, I think the earliest this book could have come out would probably have been four years ago because neuromarketing in a lack of a better word is a very new term what's so interesting is that science has been around for almost 100 years marketing and advertising have been around for 100 years but those two strange phenomena had never come together before and i think today we finally are at a stage where we can decode those amazing images of our brain and really start to understand what it means for my brand what's so ironic about this is that no one before has ever put neuromarketing marketing to the test and literally said hey does it work are you able to look into the brain and see what you're thinking and feeling so that's literally what we're doing in biology and
0: and how what were you using to look at the brain
1: we looked at two different research tools. One was fMRI, standing for Functional Magnetic Renaissance Imaging Technology, which is the most sophisticated brain research and scanning technology in the world. And, and that's where somebody's body is literally put into a small tunnel. Yes, exactly. It's like going into a donut with a very right. long, stiff tongue. Th- it is a, a very expensive mythology. It costs between four dollars and $5,000 for one scan. And what's so running is the largest neuromarketing study in the world is based on 30 people. So I wanted to make something different. And that's the reason why biology is based on 2,000 consumers' brains. Because I wanted to create a solid study. And then the second part of the research study was we used a mythology based on EED, which is a very old mythology. Uh, it's more than 100 years old. It basically measures the electric signals sent from the brain. And basically, it's a mythology which is uh, not as accurate as if MRI um, is cheaper, and it's more flexible. Different was that, first of all, we had an enormous number of people involved compared to anything else. 35 times larger is this study compared to any other studies in the world. We did it in five countries. And five, mo- five countries. Five different countries. Right. And basically, we were the first in the world to run two studies at the same time.
0: Now, when you say we, who are you referring to?
1: Well, that's an enormous team of scientists, 20 different scientists across six different countries, uh, and just a lot of people, assistants, research professors, and so forth. So, in the end of the day, this study has probably involved more than 200 people.
0: Does the research make this book a series of objective truths? How much of this is, is if you will projections from your research as opposed to what your research is actually
1: (laughs) indicating good question i think it's 50 50 um because if i should develop an entire book where every study and every claim would have a huge foundation behind it it would have been a not a seven million dollar project but probably a 700 million dollar project instead um but what I can say for sure in the book is that the seven main conclusions we are drawing out of the book is somewhat as solid as they possibly can be. You have to remember in the world of science, nothing is one hundred percent. It is ninety nine percent at best. If that was true that we'd know when we were gonna die. Well you so with you a greater say that. degree of certainty. <laughs> yeah. Than yeah than exactly. We have. And you know, I I have been frustrated about the fact that you could not come with a one hundred percent truth around everything but you can't because the scientists basically do not agree about things so so biology is looking into a range of different topics and exploring it and as i go into the depth of course i come with a lot of my analogies and stories and metaphors from right. my past and we
0: want to get into those stories because they they make it interesting and is frustration and emotion that would show up on an mri
1: yes indeed it would it does um but It's the interpretation which is the trick. It's not the pictures. The colorful, beautiful pictures of your brain is not the trick. The trick is to have the right people involved which can decode it and to set the experiment in the right way so you can measure it in the right way. If you take the biology project, it took me almost two years to set up the experiments for this. Right puts it into perspective how complex this project has been. And not only that, we were quite often getting on the brink of law yeah. because I wanted to scan certain phenomena in relationship with anti-smoking where I was not allowed to scan consumers of a certain age or use certain mythologies which were simply too innovative. For example, you know, we all know in, in the tobacco world that you are being hooked when you are between 16 to 18, right. 21 years of age. So that's the eighth bracket I really wanted to understand much more about, but I'm not allowed to, particularly right. not in certain of the countries because it's simply not an ethical you know, path you can pursue. Right? Do you know what? There's been so many people involved in this. As I said, it's a $7 million study, so we spent substantial amount of time on just designing cigarette packs. Yeah. You know, And I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but there were so many dimensions to have the stimuli materials which we used to, to, to create the right reaction in the scanners that we needed to have a full-time designer for almost a year to design that. That's yeah. how complex it is.
0: yeah uh, So you put a lot into this book.
1: You know, I, I, um, I would say it's been the hardest four years in my life. It's been the most exciting four years in my life. It is by far also uh, a project which has changed my entire view on branding, advertising, and marketing forever. I've done a lot of research studies in my past, but I hope this book uh, will help to change other people's view of this whole field. The book itself as a, a book, who do you hope will read that? Well, the average consumer. You and I, my mom, my dad, people down on the street which are going into Kmart or Target and are dying stuff because the reality is we all have our biology. Spell B U Y. The biology is basically how we are hardwired as a consumer to buy stuff and buy more and buy even more. Right. So the book is not written to business people as such. It's written to everyone. Now it happens to be so that business people most likely will end up reading it because they need to know what consumers are reading right. and to understand what's going on in the mind. But I spent substantial time on writing a book. Which everyone can read and understand and enjoy. So that's basically the broad audience we talk about here.
0: Ori Brofman, his book, Sway, uh, was on my show, was on McLaughlin. Fantastic. I thought his book was was fascinating. Wonderful book, yeah. Um, To some extent, you have taken the irrational behavior and you've looked into the brain via your research and determined that perhaps the irrational behavior... Is not really irrational at all. It's part of part of our processes. It may have the manifestation of being irrational. But to some extent, we may not have a choice.
1: Well, that's true. Let me ask you a question. Do you knock on wood?
0: <laughs> Just down a little bit around. I guess I do. <laughs> why do you do that? I, I, don't, I don't know. I think cause, partly because it's a verbal expression. But yes, of course I do. Why? I don't know why I do that.
1: No, the reality is that you and I are affected by irrational behaviors every second. In fact, 85% of everything you do every day is taking place in your subconscious mind. If you were not doing that, you would simply not survive. Just think about it. We're sitting in a relatively noisy bar right now here in New York City. Now, you and I are just hearing things as a background noise right now. But if you started to listen, you would suddenly be able to listening to the dialogue with those people sitting just next to us, you will be able to hear the music. Your brain will tune into certain things. Now, at this stage, it's subconscious. But what we've learned is I can change your shopping behavior by doing this. Let me give you an example. Imagine we are in a supermarket now. You're walking down the aisle. You want to buy some wine. Right. I have French wine. I have Italian wine. And I have American wine. Now... I'm playing some French music for you now in that store. You're not aware of it. It's just very subtle. Guess what? The sales increases of 62% among French wines. So you're buying the French wine substantially more than the Italian and American wine. At that moment, I'm playing the French music. Now, if I asked you when you left the store, why did you buy the French wine? You would have no clue. Right. Because your subconscious minds were driving things. But in this bar here, if I was playing an exotic piece of music for my wife, chances are you will buy a cocktail from that region of the world will go up some 70%. So your subconscious mind is constantly alert for signals, but your rational mind is not aware of it. And that's the reason why you sometimes will be seduced by things you're not even aware of.
0: I remember seeing in the Wall Street Journal about uh, uh, maybe six months ago the fact that that whole subliminal thing of, of throwing a... Uh, a, a flash as part of a movie, and you didn 't actually see it, but you, that was that simply wasn 't true the subliminal advertising what is the definition of it, and does it work, or doesn 't it
1: well first of all, subliminal advertising comes back to one thousand nine hundred and fifty six where vanguard was originally in in the movies in the, the cinemas book, yeah, the was was playing you know an ordinary movie and he in a blink of a one three thousand split second was showing an image of a Coca-Cola bottle and a bag of popcorn right. and supposedly people were that was rushing in 1956 56 yeah okay. and supposedly people were rushing to the counter and buying this stuff now that was creating so much controversy that in his book, that it was later on banned in 1957 around the world. And it was never tossed again. Well, what was interesting was in add which I'm also you know, doing reports for, we actually learned later on in an interview that it was all fake. And he actually made up the numbers. Yes. And so, in fact, the
0: data, the conclusion of, of not allowing this anymore was based on
1: the fact that it was true. And, in fact, it wasn't true. Well, that's right. And then what was so interesting about this was that the whole world went into panic, you know. I Even I, in my school in Denmark, and, uh, saw ice cubes with six symbols built into it, shown by my teachers, telling us about how dangerous the thing was. And it, were all, <laughs> it was all a lie. So, so basically what I wanted to do with biology was to prove if it exists or not. And um, that's where we set up an amazing experiment with that own purpose to figure out, one, does it exist? And two, is it taking place or not?
0: Now, um, in biological terms, B-I-O, not B-U-I, in biological terms, is there a threshold for what is in fact subliminal?
1: Well, yes and no. I've had huge discussions about how you define this. I define subliminal as being you affected by signals you're not aware of, which is driving a purchase intent uh, or some other intent. However, certain other people are saying that those signals or symbols should not be encoded or built into your brain already. So, i.e., if I, for example, see a picture of a Coca-Cola and I go out and buy the Coca-Cola later on, you already have been affected by a Coca-Cola campaign, and because of that, you basically have a purchase and intent. You're sort of more receptive, yeah. if you will. Well, what if, if you saw a picture of a perfume and a brand you never heard about before? Would that drive your intent? And really, we don't know that. But we do know that if you've been coded already with certain brand signals, that is where subliminal advertising was claimed in that book that it worked. Somebody cannot, as I understand it, cannot be hypnotized
0: unless they want to be. Exactly. So to some extent there's a receptivity, you want this to happen and if you've got, even if you don't uh, realize that you've got that, uh, that is when subliminal can work.
1: Exactly. The same with drugs. A recent study actually shows that you cannot be addicted to drugs unless you want it uh, either. So we obviously have a mechanism which can help us. And that's really where we've learned from this study that when you are not aware of things are happening and it happens. Your rational mind cannot kick in and take over and save you. Basically, you think it's your instinct which is telling you something, and you trust your instinct quite often, and that makes you drive to do a purchase behavior. Yeah.
0: In summary as to the experiment or what happened
1: in 1956, he, in fact, was right. Well, you know, that's where we were shocked, because we, in fact, set up an experiment where we basically took tobacco advertising to the Life. ultimate test. And why did you take tobacco? Well, of several reasons, but, you know, first of all, my, my family, our smokers, I never touch a cigarette, but, you know, my, my mother is severely affected by smoking, so is my partner's um, Mother um, and uh, close to death so it, it's close to my heart to make a stand uh-huh. uh, secondly uh, I wanted to, wanted to figure out what is the truth behind the fact that we indeed are smoking supposedly 13% more over the last 3 years how come considering the fact that you know, cigarette advertising is banned we know it's not healthy and thirdly we're not allowed to smoke indoor, how come we smoke away? So I wanted to find out, and one of the things I looked into was, of course, uh, Marlboros and, and Camels of the World, which have done some amazing campaigns over the years. I wanted to find out what is the tricks they're using. So what we did was to to take some of the most amazing sponsorships I've seen in my life, which were... The NASCAR and in particular the Formula One race. Formula One race is a major race in Europe. And uh, we looked at some of the sponsorships which Marlboro has done over the years. For example, they've been painting the Ferrari red car in certain Marlboro type of colors with white and red stripes. Um, They had the logo on but they also had versions without the logo. Basically what we did was to take all those different interesting photos of a Formula One car of a cowboy, of a camel walking down you know, the desert whatever and one by one we exposed the consumer for those signals as they were be scanned. Now what was so shocking was the reaction we looked into an area in the brain called the nucleus accumbens which is a craving spot in the brain, it's called the pleasure center so when you have an addiction for alcohol, drugs, gambling or tobacco smoking that little area will lit up and it is and no bullshit tone, sorry if but it's basically an area which cannot lie. And what we learned here was, when consumers saw the Formula One car, the Ferrari red car, the innocent car with no logos at all on it, basically the nucleus accumbens was red hot. It is and was the most powerful tool we've ever seen to make people want to smoke. And there was no logos around. And that is the first time ever we actually discovered that subliminal advertising indeed exists. And not only that, if you went with me to London and went into various pubs, I would be able to show you tiles in the bathroom, placed by the tobacco industry, sponsored by the tobacco industry, with no logos around, which have established to make you smoke more. Does it work? You bet it does. Yeah, it
0: does. And this came out of the M- MRI research, where you literally were able to see the brain react in yes. a way of from this resonance yeah. uh, imaging. Yes, yeah, so You're we able used to capture the the image on MRI of
1: the brain actually reacting. That's true. We're using fMRI, and the f stands for functional. So it's like a little movie we are basically recording off the brain and then see the reaction of the brain over a certain period of time. And we not only did a test on the Ferrari cars and the subliminal advertising, we also looked into another, I find ex- exciting, but also scary experiment about the surgeon's health warnings on the cigarette packs. Okay. So, you no, know, every pack here in the United States had those surgeons you know, are, are, are
0: there uh, warnings in uh, Europe, in the, in, the, in the EU? They on, are. In they're the-
1: actually even more dramatic than those here in the United States. It's kind of ironic because we are in a country where people tend to sue each other. Right. Well, in Europe, they are so dramatic that half of the front pack is one big disclaimer with a black bald border and it says smoking kill. Then we have warning disclaimers from Brazil. From Canada, from Thailand, and from Australia, which are very, very graphic. They are pictures of limbs, pictures of lungs, pictures of lips falling off, uh, holes in your throat, really nasty graphic images. And then we had the Japanese ones, which are more simplistic. But what I wanted to find out is does it work or is it a waste of money? Right. So again, we started up the scanners using fMRI. Scanned tons of smokers, former smokers, smokers. Just proven all (laughs) within the last couple of years. Yes, last year. Okay, this was managed, and basically has been kept totally secret until today. Okay. So, so it's groundbreaking news, which also is the reason why we see all the major TV stations here in the United States is is basically covering this because it is such a big piece of news. Right. Um, So we basically learned, and I hope you're sitting down right now that the warning disclaimers, first of all, it doesn't work at all. But not only that, it has a total opposite effect. It actually makes you smoke even more. So here we have warning disclaimers plastered on almost every cigarette pack in the world with an aim to stop people from smoking. And in reality, it's a killer marketing weapon for the tobacco industry. People
0: who are both well-intentioned and intelligent about it, is this study of... The uh, neuromarketing, did they did they not, if you will, test it in any way? And what you're saying is that, in, in effect,
1: they got it all wrong. I don't know who the day is. What were they thinking? Well, first of all, they've done a lot of tests, and they were thinking a lot of good stuff. But this is, remember, this is the first time ever neuromarketing is used to test the surgeon's general warning. No one has done that before, as, as far as we are aware at this stage. So, so it's not like they did some bad job, but we didn't have the tools to look into our subconscious mind before. Okay.
0: Will your book have an impact on specifically um, how uh, restrictions on marketing? One of the things Philip Morris has been faced all along is saying that they are anti-smoking. There has been the comment that, they're really not anti-smoking at all and and just the ads themselves even though they had the disclaimers of the warning bring people to smoke more
1: first of all yes i do hope that my work will influence what we're going to see in the future and i do work with the 11th largest anti-smoking organizations in this country as basically said to them i'm going to offer my service free of charge because this is really close to my heart and because this insight is so unique and so rare as it is um, i am Right now in the world, in certain countries, on developing new formats of warning disclaimers, on manufacturing warning disclaimers on the cigarette packs. In terms of the tobacco industry sponsoring anti-smoking commercials, it's, you can hear it already, it sounds kind of ironic, right? Right, yeah. And, and, and so it is. We do not have evidence, at least for those television commercials we've been testing, uh, produced by Philip Morris, that had the reverse effect. Uh, i.e. making you smoke more i must however i also admit we did not test all of them um, we do however have evidence that some of the television commercials produced by the governments to make you quit smoking have the reverse effect and makes you smoke even more i'll tell you it in a brief way but now we all installed with mirror neurons in our minds the so mirror neurons is neurons Basically discovered some years ago in 1989 by a professor in Parma in Italy. Uh, And it is today seen as a discovery as big as the DNA. So this is serious stuff. Now, mirror neurons is impressive. No, I'll give you an example. Imagine we went back to school when you and I were kids and you had those old blackboards. Do you remember those old blackboards? Sure. Now, if you take your long nails and you scratch them down, can you feel that? Yep. It hurts, right? Down your spine. Right. Now, that is because we are hardwired to do certain things, but also because I am basically describing something to your mirror neurons. You see, 200,000 years ago when we were monkeys, we were screaming when we saw something nasty, something which would threaten our life. Right. The frequency of that scream would be exactly the same frequency as when I scratched down my nail down the, the blackboard. Huh. Now... You and I, of course, are not walking down the street seeing snakes and screaming like that today, right, but right. it still is engraved into our brain in our subconscious mind, which is the reason why biology makes sense, because it's the only way we can look into this. And the reason why it's first now we're discovering the true effect of warning disclaimers. But what's interesting around this is that the way I describe it for you, you had a feeling even without me not doing the sound effect for you, right. you still felt that pain, right? Right. Now, that's because I'm talking to your mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are so powerful that if I scratch myself in the head, which I do right now, if I scan your brain and you watch me doing this, when we saw that you would have a tactile sensation, in the same region of your brain being activated right now, it would be like you were doing exactly what I was doing. So what you do, I do. That is called empathy. And empathy is a problem in the tobacco world, because if you watch, if you are a former smoker and you watch me smoking, you will feel right now that you're smoking as well. And that means your brain will say, hey, I feel that tactile sensation on my lips. Hey, I can smell it, I can touch it and feel the rituals, it's just one problem. In a few seconds, your brain will say, where's the craving, where's the nicotine in my brain? It's not there. And that's where you look around, you look at the bar we have just next to it, And you ask the bartender to give you a pack of Marlboros. So when tobacco and tobacco ads today are showing people smoking, perhaps in a bad context, perhaps it's filthy pictures, it does not matter. Your brain will take the good bits and it will make you smoke again. And that's where you have the bad side of anti-smoking commercials today. It's uh, interesting you say that. I I, I don't know whether I can describe it briefly, but I was just reading last
0: uh, two nights ago in This Week magazine, which is a compilation of uh, stories from around the world um, and with attribution. And they're talking about, directly to your point, they're talking about a, an individual who was injured in a car accident and who has every, capability, every uh, brain function but cannot do anything with it, literally. Uh, and they had a term for it that I, I can't remember. But the uh, the ability of a computer now to get inside the brain, they would ask this individual, he's had this condition for five years, a tragedy, and I'm not minimizing it by the description at all, but to your point, they were able to indicate to him to think of the sound, and he made the sound in his brain, and now they've got a computer technology which can take the brain waves and actually make it into a uh something that you and i could
1: hear fantastic amazing stuff no i i'm i would say it would be amazing if you could do that in five years i'll be cautious if i was them to claim that because we also have known in our experience and experiments that this is not easy stuff you know what i tend to say to people is we actually don't know a lot about the brain we probably know seven to ten percent of the brain no, it's a little bit like the analogy I tend to use by saying when Columbus we had Columbus Circle right now, when Columbus was discovering America in, in fourteen hundred ninety two, he did a drawing of map of the world. And if you look at that map today, it's not really accurate. That is how accurate a map of the brain would look like in parallel. So we don't know a lot. Right. And and, and my philosophy is very simple that No. In a world where everyone is blind, I prefer to have one eye, but it doesn't mean I'm saying the truth the whole way through. We know more, but we don't know all. I want to leave this portion
0: of the discussion and come back to the the points that you had uh, made. You said that there were, what, seven uh, results of your study. Could you share
1: those with us? Of course I can. So, th- so, the number one result is that subliminal advertising work. The second result, which I really thought was really interesting is, um, actually a result coming back to 1915. Now, in 1915, the Coca-Cola bottle was invented, and, and the, b- the briefing was very smart. The briefing was, develop a bottle, which is so smart, that if you drop it on the floor, and it smashes into thousands of pieces of glass, you can still pick up one piece of glass and recognize the brand. Isn't that cute? Really? So, so, what my philosophy has been, I call it the smash your brand philosophy, is right. can I remove your logo? And will there be anything left? And by the way, would that be powerful enough? Now, you have an iPhone here yep. on, on the table. Now, how do you know? I'm just holding it against you right now. How right. do you know this is an iPhone? Show me the logo. Right. Exactly. There's no logo on it, right? right? So, how do we know this is a, a, an iPhone? Well, I know it from the tactile sensation, I know it from the shape, I know from the navigation, the navigation sign, and so forth. Now, this is a smashable brand, as I say. That's where you really don't need the logo, all the other components are making up for it, like the white earplug, like the steering wheel, right. and so forth. Right. So, my theory has been, can you smash brands, and how powerful is this? And that's where we did another experiment. It's basically proved that the logo has no effect. In fact, quite often, the logo has the reverse effect. So if I show you a logo, my guards go up. I'm saying to myself, no, I don't want to be affected by it. I don't want to buy this right, stuff. Right, Whereas if I remove the logo and instead put indirect signals in, like a color, like a smell, like a sound, like a shape, whatever it is, I actually am seduced because my subconscious part of the brain is taking over And it seduces me to make a choice, which I think I made myself, but where actually it was decided by other people. With a logo, are we also uh,
0: limiting ourselves?
1: What I think is interesting is if there's no logo, your brain is interacting with a product to guess what it is. And that engages you much more like an interactive dialogue rather than a monologue. So that in itself is making it more memorable. If there's a logo, it's like you do a quiz show and the answer is up running before you get the answer. Or like watching a football match and we know who's the winner before it's even starting. Right. It's not fun, right? So uh, you could say in many, in many ways brands today is telling you the answer before they're asking the question, right? And, and, and the philosophy here is to make them become involved. And most importantly to make sure the consumers indirectly is making the conclusion rather than we are making the conclusion on behalf of the consumer, right? Okay, so subliminal works. That's subliminal conclusion work. number one. Conclusion number two is the future of the logo is dying. And that is you know a bit of a shocker if you think What about do we do it. about the Nike swoosh? I mean sometimes that's all it is. It is. <laughs> and and that's a good start. You know, if I if I took the play-doh smell or the cruella crayon smell or I took the sound of a coke being opened i took the uh, color of a tiffany's rubin blue box without a logo on it those things will do it they don't need you don't need more and, and in fact when we talk about the, the tiffany in fact the rubin blue color makes women's heartbeat rate Increased with 22% according to our study, just when they see the box. The third part of the study was actually sensory. We took the sense of smell, the sense of sound, and uh, the sense of sight to the test. And this is so interesting. No one has done that before. Now, people have tested it in my previous book, Brand Sense. I did a lot of experiments around this, but I asked questions. We did not scan consumers' brain. Okay. And so we did that here, and guess what we learned? Number one, we learned that the sense of sound is the most powerful sense of all the senses we have. Stronger than smell. Smaller than smell, stronger than sight. Now, 83% of all communication today from the biggest companies in the world is only appealing to the sense of sight. It is e- except you and me talking here <laughs> on McLaughlin at work. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. I like, no- <laughs> yeah. I like number three. Yeah. This works for me. <laughs> so, sound is really powerful. Uh, do you know why? Because it activates our mirror neurons. When you're right now sitting in front of your speakers listening to us to having a conversation, you, dear listener, will feel the environment. You will imagine that indirectly in your brain. You will imagine how it look like your mirror neurons are activated as we speak. That's the reason why radio is still one of the most powerful media to create imaginations in our brain. Okay. So we learned the that, that, that
0: works for me. I like that. Then that's good. Well, I, Should I we probably, stop here for moment that and enjoy the silence? <laughs> I don't care about four, four, five, six, and seven. I like number three. I'll go with box three. The one thing that I would ask, I guess on a relative uh, basis, sound versus smell. In our memory, smell triggers something for us that it makes it the most
1: memorable of the senses. Is there something to that? There is. Well, you're talking about the the Proustian effect, and that is a a theory developed by a French novelist, which many years ago in France, uh, were dipping a meddling biscuit down in a cup of tea. And as he did that, that smell spinning out of that was so dramatic, it reminded him about his mother's bakeries, and it took him straight back in time. And this guy, he wrote not one book, but six books, he was French, right, um, <laughs> <laughs> about dipping a biscuit down and a cup of tea. Right. But, but what is amazing about this journey is that we call it the Bruce Jane effect. And the Bruce Jane effect, we have learned from this story, is not only taking place when you're smelling things, it also takes place with sound. Just imagine you're sitting in the car, you're hearing the first sound as when you met your wife right. or your first girlfriend, okay. and you'll be taken back in time. So it's not just one sense, it's actually across all five senses. Um, it's not as dramatic for all the senses. But the difference between smell and other senses is the smell, indeed, is the only sense which is bypassing the rational part of the brain. Okay, oh, say that again. It, it bypasses the rational part of the brain okay. and going straight to the emotional part of your brain okay and that basically means that you will not be able to filter through things and say oh, i don't believe that i don't trust that and so forth your brain will basically take it as a correct answer in the end of the day i don't understand if you know all this how can you be normal i would be if i were you i'd be
0: paralyzed you seem like a nice guy how do you deal with that
1: I am just as affected by brands as you are. You know <laughs> I am. I was. I am. Was even Sw- though you know it. <laughs> I know it. I was in Switzerland yesterday. I'll tell you a funny story. I have a fancy watch and and and, um, and, and I thought this watch, it's a Rolex thing, right? So I thought, I want to have a new watch, right? Okay. And then Of course you go to Switzerland. You're in Switzerland. <laughs> this is the place of the watches, right? So I went down to a used dealer to sell my watch. And he looked at me and he said, listen, uh, you can maximum get $3,000 for this watch. Now, this watch normally costs with a zero behind. I said, you must be kidding. He said, why? Well, he said to me, because it's a gold watch, number one. Only old men have gold watches. And gold watches, you know, add 10 years to your perception. Secondly, it's a woman's watch you have. Your arm is too thin. I said, thank you for that, and <laughs> I left this store, right? <laughs> then I walked down Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich, in Switzerland, and I saw a beautiful new watch from Rolex. I thought, I want to have that. And then I thought with myself, gee, I wonder <laughs> if this is some other trick. So basically, I'm not buying a watch for $30,000, i am buying a watch for $1,000, but I'm not aware. I don't care, I said. Yes, I care. I don't care. I don't care. So I ended up with a stupid discussion in my mind. And my rational side was saying, don't bite. They're just putting a brand on your neck. And the emotional side, of course, that I hey, wanted. you have never
0: it. mentioned once that you wanted to tell what time it was. <laughs> no, but I don't care. About <laughs> that it. was not a fact. You know, it wasn't a factor. and I can tell you, Rolex <laughs> is not very accurate anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to take that out. We can't leave that <laughs> in here on the Network. We're always we know our friends from Rolex, and, and they're very uh, very strong supporters of the yachting community. So we uh, of course they do. It's called
1: sampling. <laughs> 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 okay, so number four case number four is very interesting because that comes back to product placement in fact we work uh, on testing American Idol and the manufacturers and the producers behind American Idol to understand how influential is product placement and sponsorships Now, and
0: we would think that Simon and I at all are very sophisticated is would, that fair?
1: We would think that and I think we can conclude they're not so the biggest free sponsors of American Idol is uh, Coca-Cola it is Ford and it the former singular was now is HMT. Uh, and yes, Coca-Cola did very well. In fact, when we did the scans, as people were watching the shows, in fact, in the end of the show, they remember Coke more than in the beginning of the show. Well done. Ford, on the other hand, was totally a disaster. In fact, what we learned was, when people watched the show, they remember Ford less than before they started to watch the show. So literally, Ford has managed to place the brand in such a disastrous way in the American Idol that it deleted basically the brand from the brain. Was it because
0: the Coca-Cola took up a lot of our bandwidth and we couldn't remember anything else? Or was there some At other element? Point,
1: that was one reason why. We only have a certain space. You see, the fact is we need to fill the things away all the time. And we only have a certain space for brands to be right. competing brands. Right. Pepsi versus Coke. Microsoft versus Apple and so forth. Um, so, of course, that is taking a lot of space. But the second reason why, which is even more important, I think, is it was out of context. If you take AT&T, it makes sense that they're sponsor of the show because people call in on the cell phone right. to do a voting here, right? The text message or yeah. however they would do it. It makes sense, you know. It makes you become a hero. Coca-Cola has something called the Red Room. That's where you go in as a... A, a, a singer, you relax, you enjoy Coca-Cola is known for music and so forth It makes sense But what the heck should I use a Ford car for? Oh, no, I don't win this show by driving around in a Ford car It's has nothing to do with this show So my brain will say Why is a Ford car in the middle of this whole storyline? It, it doesn't make sense And basically Ford has been throwing 26 million dollars Out in the garbage bin as a result They've been doing a lot of that not only
0: in their marketing, <laughs> but I think that's been true of American cars in general. Okay.
1: Well, number six um, is um, the point around religion and branding. And I find that is… R- religion and branding. Religion and yes, branding. Yeah, because I
0: noticed I, as I was scanning through the book, you did have that issue of ceremony and, uh, and uh, the Vatican and the height of uh, St. Peter's. Exactly. And, and the fact that nothing can be higher than. Yeah. Interesting point.
1: <laughs> exactly. And and, and no, religion is fascinating, do you know the Corona beer ritual?
0: The, that lime stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: I never understood it.
1: I'll give you three options. Is okay. It a, a ritual which is developed in 1800 and something from Mexico, it's so an old tradition. Is it B, because the sanitary issues in Mexico because of all those flies and the heat is so bad that you clean the bottleneck with using this lime? Or is it C? Uh, because the beer is so bad, so you had to basically put a lime on top of it to get rid of the
0: taste. I would have said that it was pure marketing, it was D, and they had to somehow differentiate themselves, so they they didn't want to put a banana on the top, so they put a lime.
1: Well, it's actually E. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The result is actually, the story goes, the two bartenders in California were betting on how fast they could spread a ritual so they basically did a betting war and guess where we're ending today today it is the most powerful ritual in the world the reason why corona beer is the biggest import beer into the united states the reason why heineken has never managed to beat them this is a ritual and this is incredibly powerful and that is basically leading to point number six using rituals and other elements from the world of religion has shown to be incredibly powerful So, what I wanted to prove was to prove that there was a correlation between religion and branding. So we basically recruited a ton of people belonging to the faith of Christianity. We scanned the brains, exposed them for symbols and symbolic languages from the world of Christianity and learned what areas in the region or regions in the brain was activated. So you found man's soul. This is an impressive uh, interview. We started out with
0: an MRI, and now we found man's soul.
1: I think the reality, and I want to stress this, I'm not in any way imitating religion or mapping down what religion is, but what I am doing is to understand what activity is going on in the brain, and if I correlate that with brands with a powerful like Apple, Harley Davidson, Hello Kitty, Guinness Beer, that type of brands, and expose that for consumers, measuring the brain, we indeed learned that exactly the same regions was activated in the brain. And that, of course, is a fascinating insight, the first of its kind in the world, because it proves for us now that if you want to build powerful brands of tomorrow... In fact, you need to imitate the world of religion, and that means by one by one start to, to adapt elements from the world of religion, i.e. rituals, having an enemy, uh, storytelling, mystery, all those different things, into the world of, of brands. And that's exactly what's happening right now.
0: What sparked in you the notion of religion? What triggered that?
1: I think several reasons. Um, I learned that when I wrote my book, no not the last book but the previous book called Brand Child uh, that um, the majority of kids were much more religious than I thought. In fact 50% of all kids across the world hoped that religion would grow and then wanted to have something to believe in. And that's really where it struck my mind that in fact those brands would seem to be more popular among kids were well, actually brands which had a lot of elements somewhat similar to the world of religion. Now I realize no studies has been conducted around this. Uh, I conducted one of them I actually. Have asked consumers how many uh, were prepared to tattoo an Apple tattoo on arm, and I was stunned to see that 80% of Apple fans in fact are prepared to put an Apple tattoo on arm. <laughs> but but. I really
0: I, I, I'm not one. I'm I one I, of
1: the 20%. <laughs> that 80-20 rule. But I bet you, if you're a seller, you would have another symbolic <laughs> language from the world of selling, that's right? right. Yeah. Exactly. No one really has proven this from a sci, you know, from a neuroscience point of view, and that's what I wanted to do. So we are again the first in the world doing this. So we're breaking new ground. I don't need to tell you it's highly controversial. And it's not that I want to imitate religion. I'm basically just learning, and it's being inspired from it. Right. And number seven number no, 7 is, is, is a whole notion around that neural marketing actually works. And in fact, I should have started by saying that. <laughs> That's all right, because we we're going
0: to be running out of time on the battery here <laughs> on the Apple. <laughs> okay, so,
1: we're so talking faster <laughs> right now. You're right. Where did you learn that neural marketing does work? Again, with a company behind American Art, we produced a special TV show called Chris Mania. It's like Wheel of Fortune on Speed. And that particular show uh, was uh, tested by scanning consumers' brains. We asked them if they liked the show, guess what? They absolutely hated the show, funny enough. We then scanned the brains and learned that they loved the show. And then we added and learned that actually the prediction we had in terms of the success of the show actually came true. And this is the first time ever anyone has predicted the success of a brand, even without asking one single question. And I guess this is a good way to wrap it up all, because it is the first time ever anyone has proven that neuromarting works, that we can avoid asking questions and look into our mind. We cannot do that with everything, we can do that with some, and this is the first step into our biology, as I say, and it's the first step into the truth and lies about why we buy.
0: Just my brief review of the book and the people who have been impressed by it, it is a body of work which this interview really doesn't do it justice. I've had you put ten years into this. I put about twenty minutes into the book, and I was I'm dealing right off the seat of my pants here in a bar in the Mandarin Oriental.
1: Thank you for saying what you're saying, but I'm not sure I I, uh, I agree with you. No, um, this of course is a um, a, a pretty mind blowing project, but it is also work in progress, and and so it should be. And I think it's the first step into our biology. Um, I do think, and I do hope, that it will change the entire way we build brands. Uh, and I want to say to you, uh, to your listeners, by the way, that if they by now are saying, "Wow, how do you, how does it look like? How does an fMRI scan look like? How does it look like when we're scanning people's being exposed for religious images?" If they have a minute or two, they should visit uh, the, my website, martinlinstrom.com, because there there's videos showing how the scan looks like, so they can get an idea about that. And there may be a good way for you to get a grip around it, even though sound is the most powerful sense. My last question
0: to you, uh, Martin Lindstrom, uh, and the book is biology, B-U-I dot O-L-O-G-Y, yellow cover. I'm sure there's a reason why the color is yellow as opposed to something else. Um, (laughs) Truth and lies about why we buy. Let me ask you this. Um, What impact has the economic meltdown going forward, Christmas season and beyond, what impact will that have on people's buying habits?
1: How much battery do you have left right now? (laughs) Well, you know, um, first of all, what will happen is the brand will be substituted by cheaper brands we we'll still buy our water and we we'll still buy our conflicts, but will we buy the branded conflicts or the cheaper branded conflicts? and the answer is probably yes we will change it there will be certain brands will be suffering a lot um, I think first of all what we will see is that consumers will start to be very cautious and if you happen to be a consumer which I think we all are here's my advice to you do a shopping list before you go out shopping now today we reached a level where we don't do shopping lists because it's old-fashioned. Well, I can tell you one thing, it's a very good trick because that's the way you avoid being seduced when you're shopping around. And, and, and ne- never shop when you're hungry. Never shop when you're <laughs> hungry. And never, by the way, shop if you have kids with you as well because then you'll try to buy yourself out of the guilt. That's another book. It is. <laughs> is it is another if book. If you want to get into parenting, I think, <laughs> yeah, Martin, he's I'd have to check out even, your
0: credentials on that.
1: I we need even more battery, I think, <laughs> on that one, yeah. <laughs> what will happen, though, is that brands over the next half year will start to struggle a lot. Do never go on discount if you are a brand. That means don't say, gee, my sales is going down, let's give my consumer 30%. Because what will happen is it will be very nice on the short run. And the long run, you will almost never manage to succeed getting back to the right price level again. That means you'll be struggling forever to get your brand back on track. So... You will see this will be a, a story which will run for two to three years from now in this crisis. And brands will probably be the way you can avoid discounting your brand too much or your product too much. But will also be, of course, the thing you should nurture. Advertise. Do not cut your advertising budget because it, right now you're getting the, the value for money because no one else is doing it.
0: And as a result, presumably, of your work, Ford presumably will not be a big advertiser on American Idol next year.
1: Listen, uh, Ford can get value out of American Idol they just need to do it very differently. And, and that of course is a whole story about how to make the brand relevant in the show. Because let me put it this way, if you had the best real estate space in New York City and you're running a restaurant and it's not doing very well, it may be you should not consider selling the spot. It may be you should consider opening another stall there instead, which fits to the audience, and that may be the answer to so Ford, to place it in a different way. You have a fantastic spot. Use it while you can.
0: The brain is a remarkable instrument.
1: It is. It's probably the reason why you and I still are talking. Martin
0: Lindstrom, thank you very much for your time this evening, and we look forward to talking with you further. Paul McLaughlin and McLaughlin at Work, back here week one, 2009. Looking forward to week two. Join me for a discussion with Promise Phelan about Upmo, a web-based GPS for careers. All here for the next year. Web Talk Radio, McLaughlin at Work, The Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace in 2009. Thanks for listening.